the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Memorial Day weekend show. I'm doing it remotely from Clearwater, Florida. You're not going to believe this, Ken. We jumped on our bicycles yesterday morning, and we rode from Gulfport, Florida to Clearwater, Florida with a few stops for food and and drinks. And uh, so we did a 22-mile bike ride, the wife, the son, and I. I'm very impressed. I'm very impressed. We spent spent the night, uh, went out, had dinner. Uh, It's a zoo up here, man. I'm telling you, yesterday... Uh, social distancing is a myth. Now, I don't think anybody's heard of it up here, mostly younger people. I don't think I've seen this many tattoos in my entire life. Oh, my God. And more flesh and, and uh, people running around half naked in their thong suits and everything. Fascinating. It's interesting to see. But it was so crowded coming over the Clearwater Cros- Causeway. Causeway. <laughs> Causeway. Uh, we were, of course, on our bicycles in the bike lane, so we didn't have any problem. But it must have taken an hour, an hour and a half to get across that, that causeway. Uh, for those of you who don't know Clearwater Beach, you go from Clearwater over the water on the bridge, and there's a causeway that then goes from one little island to another out to the, to the beach island. And it was just jam-packed. I mean, unbelievable. Uh, most of the restaurants have opened back up at their... Uh, a lot of them have every other booth blocked off. There's uh, limited seating, although that's not true for for a lot of the uh, littler restaurants along the Strip and where all the young people are. And the beach was just, I mean, it was just jam-packed. It was unbelievable. Uh, we're looking right at the beach from our, our hotel room, and uh, when we were coming over the causeway, there was a big sign that said the beaches were closed that they had reached full capacity. So I guess that the police were manning the parking lots, the public parking lots. Now, the private parking lots, like here at the Hilton Hotel, you could hardly get in here. It was it was, uh, it was was chaos. People were cussing and carrying on because they were forced to sit and wait, nobody to park their car, nowhere to park. Good thing we were on bicycles. But you didn't see a lot of masks, apparently, huh? No, I, I had a mask on. Most of the restaurants, the the better restaurants, the uh, waiters and waitresses had on masks. Uh, but uh, on the street, I'd say one in one in a hundred, one in two hundred, maybe one in two hundred people had a mask. Nobody. So we'll see. I think we'll see a resurgence. Well, I'm just going to ask you: is this, is this a bad sign for the future? That people seem to think it's over. Yeah, I think people think it's over and it's not, and it's easy to fall into that because we're opening things back up. But 
this is not over. Now, again, as, as I've been saying all along, if we lose a million people, it's not the end of the world. And they're going to largely be the elderly anyway. So, you know, people like me, I'll be gone. Bye. See you. Nice knowing you. But uh, the young people, I don't think we're going to see too many deaths there. And they're probably they probably realize that, you know, just not from listening to the news, but from looking at each other and saying that nobody's dying from from this. And if they get sick, well, they have a flu like syndrome for a few days and then they they're done. So we'll see what happens. It'll be interesting. But we're getting our arms around this medically. The treatment has really come come. I mean, we have learned a lot in the past two months. It's it's unbelievable that we're saving almost everybody now, even old. 90-year-olds, we're sending them back to the nursing home or back to home where they came from. So, and I'll tell you about that when we get into the show a little bit more, but I, I, I did want to share this with you. I think this is probably the most significant thing that we've uh, got going on right now is the vaccination, the AstraZeneca vaccine that is being produced and should be here in the fall. Now, AstraZeneca has uh, teamed up with Oxford's uh, research gang at the Jenner Institute. And Edward Jenner is the father of, of uh, immunology, immunizations. I'll tell you a little bit about him later in the show. He's an interesting guy. Well, the whole, the whole smallpox vaccination history is pretty cool. I, I think you'll like that. So there's an agreement for AstraZeneca, the big drug company, to supply at least 400 million doses and they have a capacity for $1 billion through 2020 and into 2021. And uh, it should be more coming after that. It's going to be distributed worldwide. And there will not be any profit making, supposedly, by AstraZeneca. They're not going to make a profit on it. They're going to do it at cost, which is good. Uh, you know, that, that, that shows some real uh, responsibility and social commitment and all that kind of stuff. Now, a billion dollars was donated by the U.S. Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, which I'm assuming is part of this, the uh, CDC Health and Human Services, but I don't, I don't know for sure. And uh, the vaccine has had really good results in clinical trials. It's, it seems to be working. Of course, with any vaccine, there's potential for some side effects. And any of you who have had a live vaccination, like a, a flu vaccine, you know, you get a little soreness in your arm. And some people will even get a little uh, influenza, little cold-like syndrome, a day of fever and aches, uh, headache, whatever. But uh, so this is going to have the same kind of effect. But uh, th that's short-lived. And I tell all of my patients when we're using a live uh, vaccine, and, and I'll explain a live vaccine as opposed to a killed vaccine in a minute. But if you're getting a live vaccine, I just tell them, take some Advil or some Aleve. Uh, Tylenol won't work as well because it's not an anti-inflammatory. It, it will help with the pain and the fever. But part of this is the inflammatory response. So you get a little anti-inflammatory effect from the NSAIDs, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And that includes aspirin and ibuprofen and Naproxen and Aleve and uh, Advil and all these kinds of medications. So you can ask your pharmacist uh, what an over-the-counter non-steroidal anti-inflammatory is. If you don't remember Aleve and uh, Advil, those are the two common ones that you'll get on the shelf. So there are side effects to the vaccine, but they're minimal. They're they're 
no different than any other live vaccine that I've seen used. And uh, it looks like it's working very well. People are building up a good immunity to the, uh, they're making the IgG antibodies to the, uh, to the specific part of the COVID virus uh, that we are targeting. And what happens is you stimulate your little white blood cells, your lymphocytes to make antibodies to this one protein. The protein actually is the, uh, the little uh, sucker thing that sticks out of the capsule of the virus and locks onto the cell at the, uh, at the uh, ACE2 inhibitor or the ACE2 receptor site in the cell. And, you know, we didn't know that was there before, Ken. We didn't know the ACE2 receptor site existed. We knew about ACE1 because we've been using ACE inhibitors for blood pressure. The ACE uh, receptor is the, uh, the receptor that starts the conversion of um, a certain protein released by the kidney and turns it into uh, into um, aldactone, which is a uh, a hormone that helps us hang on to salt also pushes up our blood pressure. And there are some intermediate steps in there, angiotensin one and angiotensin two. And uh, those are very, very uh, constricting of the blood vessels. So they push your blood pressure up. So we block that receptor, the angiotensin converting enzyme receptor in the cells, in the kidney and in the liver. And uh, we didn't know there was an angiotensin two receptor site. We did not know that an ACE2 receptor site until we started looking at this virus. So that's why we're pretty sure this is not a man-made virus, that it would have been uh, almost inconceivable that anybody would have figured out that there was a second similar receptor site on the cells until this virus came along and we started investigating how it locked on to our cells, where it locked on. You know, it's a key and lock mechanism, so it's pretty specific. Like you go up to Home Depot and you get a key cut from your, your car key or your house key, and it's highly specific. So if you hold your key up to your neighbor's key, it's going to be different looking. Same thing with the cell and the viruses, where they lock in and how they lock in to get into the cell. So at any rate, to make a long story short, the way that they're making this, uh, it's it's interesting, this uh uh, this vaccine is they're taking uh, 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 an adenovirus, which is a cold virus, another cold virus, and they have weakened that adenovirus. They've basically made it sterile so it can't reproduce inside of a human cell. It can get in, but it can't reproduce. And then they spliced in some genetic material into the adenovirus's uh, little genetic code that encodes for the production of this protein. Uh, that sticks off this protein complex. It sticks off of the coronavirus, the COVID virus, and allows it to attach to our cells. So you've got a sterile virus uh, that cannot reproduce this ad this adenovirus. It's been weakened. It's been genetically altered. Then you've got a protein from the COVID virus spliced into the uh, genetic material so that this little adenovirus will stimulate a response. So it has this little protein sticking off of it and our lymphocytes our specific white blood cell population that deals with immunity sees that makes antibodies to it has a memory for it and you're immune pretty cool pretty cool so i'm real uh, i'm real excited about this and i think it's it's going to certainly change the whole narrative of the uh, of the coronavirus epidemic now, this is uh, funded, again, by 
a U.S. organization. Well, I'm sure the British kicked in some money, too, and, and the European Union, who knows who else. It's probably a worldwide effort, but it, it comes out of the um, out of the Jenner Institute at the University of Oxford. And you probably don't know who Jenner is, Ken. Not a clue. No, I really don't. Not a clue. Okay, Edward Jenner was a 18th and 19th century physician. He was English, and he uh, got interested in smallpox. And so, in 17 late 1780s, he actually published. Uh, a treatise because he had taken cowpox from the milkmaids. Now, the milkmaids would milk the cows. The cows had cowpox, and they'd get these little cowpox blisters, these little viral blisters on their hands. And he noticed, well, he probably wasn't the first to notice it, but he was the one who who, uh, wrote it up, so he got the credit for it. He was the scientific guy that wrote the paper on it. And he noticed that they did not get smallpox the milkmaids were immune to smallpox. So he said, well, there must be something to this. The cowpox and the smallpox must be similar. And the cowpox is not killing the milkmaids. So maybe we could use some of that material from one of those those blisters and immunize everybody else and see if that'll keep them from getting smallpox. So he started off, I think his first victim was, I mean, his first uh, patient was, uh, did I say victim? (laughs) Yeah, you did. <laughs> okay, his first patient. <laughs> and so, yeah, okay, oh, I'm sorry. So his first patient was an eight or nine-year-old kid. Yeah, I wonder how he got selected. <laughs> At any rate, so he broke open a blister from the milkmaid's cowpox on her hand, and he took some of that inoculum, and he put it into the skin of this kid, and uh, and the kid developed a little cowpox reaction locally and and then uh, the kid was exposed to smallpox and he didn't get it so jenner said hey that works so then he tried it on a whole bunch of other people and then when he thought he had enough for his study he published it with the royal society which was the the uh, the big the big guy the big uh, scientific group in in england at that time i think they're still in, in existence so jenner wrote up his paper and he got the credit for the smallpox vaccine, but the story starts way before that. Now, in the 1720s, which was about what, 60, 70 years before Jenner actually published his study, the women coming back from Constantinople of the diplomats, the wives of the diplomats coming back, had brought with them what we think is probably a camelpox, which is similar to smallpox and cowpox. So there's a whole family of pox viruses, and they're fairly similar. And what the women had learned from the local uh, upper echelon women in that society was that some of the doctors had been using this camel pox vaccine to vaccinate families and kids, and it seemed to work quite well to prevent smallpox. Smallpox was a real scourge. I mean, it could hit a town or uh, uh, an area, and it could wipe out 10 to 20% of the population and leave, uh, you know, a, another 10 to 20% horribly disfigured uh, from the uh, scars all over their body. Uh, you probably have never seen anybody who's had smallpox, Ken, but I have, and it's it's pretty horrendous to see. Uh, it's, it's a terrible disease. We've pretty much eliminated it from the world, and it's certainly been gone from the United States since the 1950s or 60s 
And by the way, I remember my dad, who was an allergist and an immunologist, and he was involved with the decision-making as to whether or not we should stop the uh, immunization of kids for smallpox. I don't know if you're old enough to have gotten a smallpox vaccination. Did you get one, Ken? I think I did way back when, yeah. So it was uh, it was like a bunch of little needles in a circle, yeah. and they push it into your arm, uh, into your shoulder, and uh, you'd get a big scab up there and a local reaction and you know it itched and it burned and looked terrible for several days but then you got over it and you were immune well we found out that kids who had immunological problems who were born with deficits in their immune system some of these kids would get a a, a secondary uh, infection because this this pox virus that we were using to uh, to immunize everybody would get through their whole system because they, they didn't have any antibodies capable of fighting it. So they would get like a, 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 a small um, smallpox type syndrome and we were having some kids die from it. Not many, but, you know, there were more kids dying from the vaccination than we were saving at that point. And we realized that smallpox was pretty much out of the population of the United States. So we stopped that in the 60s and that was the end of the smallpox vaccination. But at any rate, this goes back to 1720, So, the, in, in, at least in England. So the women brought the, the vaccine home with them, the sera, and they would immunize, you know, each other and the kids. And, uh, and so they were all immune. Uh, this had been going on for decades before Jenner ever put together his, uh, his treatise and, his, and published his study on this. And actually, we think the whole immunization thing started probably in the 12th or 13th century with Chinese or uh, 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 Central Asian physicians using uh, cowpox or camelpox inoculum. And what they would do is they'd swab the nose of the patients who wanted to be immunized. And that's how they started the whole immunization process. And it worked its way across the Asian continent into Asia Minor and then eventually into Europe. You probably didn't know this, but guess which country was the first country to be widely, almost completely immunized against smallpox? Well, I'm going to go with the U.S. You got it. Yeah. And it happened, it happened during the Revolutionary War. Early on, Washington realized that the British were, were not above using biological warfare. And he had learned about the smallpox vaccination, as, as had John Adams and a lot of the other founding fathers. And so... He made all the Continental soldiers uh, take the immunization, I think in 1777, uh, early on. And so they were all immunized. And so, you know, two-thirds of the population just worshipped Washington. Of course, one-third were loyal to the crown, and they hated him. But the two-thirds that were loyal, uh, they said, well, you know, His Excellency General Washington has immunized everybody against smallpox, and we better do what he does and follow him. So all up and down the 13 colonies, people were immunizing each other. John Adams' wife, Abigail, she immunized her kids, and she almost lost her daughter to the secondary infection. Uh, apparently, her daughter had some immune problems, but she made it through, and it spread around. And so all of the United States, or most of the United States, was immunized before anywhere else in the world. Any other major country in the world had had accepted and had instituted immunization of their 
of their population. I thought that was pretty cool. Pretty cool. One Washington. little fact. Washington was a great guy. That's right. Smart guy. Uh, he, he was really a smart guy. And it just, but, you know, he was uh, unlike Jefferson, who, who was the, uh, the writer and the, and the promoter. He was pretty low key. He didn't, you know, he didn't draw a lot of uh, attention to the really brilliant things that he did. Have you ever been to Mount Vernon? I have. As, as a child, we went there, took a family vacation there. It's a beautiful place. Beautiful. And did you do you remember seeing the thrashing barn that he invented? It, it's a two story uh, building, and the upper deck is uh, they're they're like rods that go out and like spokes, and they uh, and it's a big circular room. It's a big circular barn, and uh, they would take the horses or the mules or whatever up there, and they'd hitch them to the central uh, post, you know, the merry-go-round post. And they'd have thrashing, uh, uh, whatever you call the things you drag behind that that breaks the grain away from the shaft, thrashing rods. And so they'd bring the weed up there, and they would throw the weed on the thrashing floor, and the horses would walk around, and they would drag the uh, heavy uh, boards across it, and that would knock the grain loose, and it would fall through the slats in the in the floor down to below where they would collect the grain in like a silo area. And so that's how he had, that's what he invented. And that's how he had his grain thrashed out. And he sold the hard red winter wheat, uh, the flour, he ground it to flour. He had a grinding mill and he actually uh, tweaked the mill stones and the mechanism of it a little bit himself to make it more efficient, which nobody knows about. And, uh, he would sell hard red winter wheat, which was worth its weight in gold in Europe. Uh, he had seen the collapse of uh, tobacco. And, you know, a lot of the southern <clears throat> farmers were still planting tobacco because that was a big market in the early part of the 17th and 18th or in the late 17th and early 18th century. But he said he was a good businessman, too. He said, I don't think the market's going to hold up. So he went into wheat. Smart guy. And he got rich. And then when he became president and they passed the Whiskey Tax Act, he opened up a still, a legitimate still. He said, well, you know what? I think this is a good thing, and I'm going to support the economy by selling whiskey legitimately and also make some more money for, for, the, uh, for the plantation, for the farm. Smart guy. Had no, idea. Smart. He was, had no idea he was an entrepreneur. He was. He was an entrepreneur. He was an inventor. Uh, he was a military guy. He he. He got it. He cut his teeth as in a surveyor. He was a surveyor and he would go and he loved being in the outdoors. And that's why he enjoyed and would tolerate fairly well the uh, the role of being the leader of his troops. And, you know, he stayed with the troops at Valley Forge through the winter, uh, which no general had ever done before, I'm sure. Or at least no general in, in, at that, in that era had done. And uh, but he was a surveyor. So he surveyed a lot of Kentucky and Tennessee because those were part of Virginia at that time. And uh, that, that's how he started out. And he just loved camping out. He also fought with the British in the French and Indian War. And he was part of the uh, colonial militia. So he had, had a lot of experience, a lot of background, and a very interesting guy, a real giant. And we forget about him because we want to praise people like Lincoln and Jefferson. Although Jefferson's got some bad play lately because he was, quote, quote, a slaveholder, slave owner. But, uh, you know, that those were the times. Let's move on. <clears throat> so at any rate, 
so the history of immunization begins with in modern Western history and medical history begins with Edward Jenner. And so the Jenner Institute at Oxford is the institute that studies immunology and, and immunizations and all this sort of stuff. So there you go. Now you know. You didn't that, know that, did you? No, I didn't. Is that where the, that's probably where the old insult, the pox upon your family, comes from. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The pox upon your family. You know, if you had the pox, you know, it was terrible and it would spread from person to person. Uh, just uh, very, very uh, contagious. It, it was a contact uh, virus, so it was fairly common for entire families to get it. And uh, it's a, a horrible thing. It was a horrible, horrible thing. I've seen, I've seen people who had it, and it, it's not a nice, not a nice disease to get. So, fortunately, we've we've uh, fairly well eliminated that from our culture. And uh, you can say what you want about Western medicine and all that, but People just don't realize how much healthier, uh, happier, fuller lives they're leading because of what Western medicine has done. And so the good thing is AstraZeneca is on top of this, and they are uh, producing this vaccine, and they're going to have a billion doses by next year. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's uh, amazing. I understand. I was reading just yesterday, as a matter of fact, that the uh, drug companies all around the world are actually sharing information for the first time to get the, get a handle on this, just so even if one fails, they know, okay, we went that way before, so let's go a different way, which I thought was amazing because usually they're, they're better competitors. It depends on what they're doing. If, uh, you know, you would, you would think that it's uh, – it's, uh, uh, highly competitive, but it's also highly, uh, how should I say this? Uh, it, it's a very interbred community because, you know, people jump ship and uh, information is shared. If, if you need to uh, get some piece of something for this to make that. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a fairly inbred uh, community and a lot of people know each other. I was at the uh, uh, the Excipient Fest, which is down in, in uh, uh, Puerto Rico a couple of years ago, two three years ago. An Excipient is the vehicle that we put the medication in and press it into a pill or a gel or whatever. It's uh, it's a, it's basically um, you know goop or uh, uh, methyl cellulose or some 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 form of methyl cellulose that is used either as a liquid or a lotion or a gel or pressed into pills. And there's other things that we use too, but that's probably the simplest thing to, to think of as methyl cellulose, you know, tree bark. So we use that and uh, the excipient test is all about all the different excipients vehicles that are being used to manufacture medications, drugs, gels, lotions, potions, whatever. And there are, uh, members of every conceivable uh, pharmaceutical company you can think of there at the meeting. Everybody's talking, there's booths, there's interaction, they're talking about what they're doing. Of course, if they're doing something that's top secret and they don't have the patent on it yet, uh, they they say, well, you know, I can't tell you all the details, but we're working on this, this, and this. And you probably didn't know this, Ken, that they will not, the big companies will not bring a new drug to market until another company brings it to market. 
because of the liability and all the legalities and the cost of it. So there are dozens of really potent, high-powered, effective medications that are just sitting on the shelf uh, at uh, all these big pharmaceutical companies like AstraZeneca and Bristol-Myers Squibb that they're not using because they don't want to go through all the legal hassles of bringing it to market. They don't want the liability of being the first company to use it. And that's a fact, Jack. I think so, your show is so educational, Doc. This, so that's that's it's really fascinating. You know, you learn so much if you just walk around a lot and talk to people. <laughs> it's it's great. So that's Edward Jenner, and that's the vaccination. Now, I said we're getting our arms around things, and we are. Uh, we are not losing patients like uh, initially people or doctors were losing them uh, to the COVID virus because we're figuring out how to treat it. And we're, we're actually getting our arms around this and figuring out how to uh, take care of these patients. And as I said before, with the remdesivir, that stuff, is it's miraculous. Yeah. Now, there are probably going to be side effects long term from remdesivir, but you know, if you're 75, 80 years old and you want to live another 10 years and you figure, well, you know, there might be some late effects. Maybe I'll get some arthralgias from it when I'm 90. Who cares if you make it through through because you got a couple doses of remdesivir? And I don't even know that there are long term side effects, but it really, really works. I mean, you know, you give it in the afternoon one day and the next day the patients are sitting up and they're not short of breath and they're feeling a lot better. It's, it's, it's an, an amazing thing. We also know that this causes a blood clotting and uh, syndrome. And so we give anti-clotting medication. Uh, we know that putting people on the ventilator now and intubating them and putting them on the ventilator has worse outcomes than just giving them high flow oxygen or a positive pressure face mask, which is kind of like a, a, it's, it's a, you know, it goes over your mouth and nose and it seals tightly. And then we can we can put a positive pressure along with oxygen into your airways. Uh, we also know that there's a lot of fluid buildup in the in interstitium between the, the little air sacs and the blood vessels in the, in the lungs. And so we can give a water pill or a water injection, you know, a diuretic like Lasix or Bumex into the, into the uh, venous system and get you to pee out some fluid. And they're doing better there. Of course, we're using the Plaquenil, and we know that this is an inflammatory situation, so we know the Plaquenil helps. We're also using steroids, you know, cortisone, prednisone, Depomedrol, those kinds of things. So we're treating it from a multitude of, of uh, from various angles. We're, we're hitting it at the viral replication level with the remdesivir. We're getting the inflammatory response with Plaquenil and steroids. Uh, we're getting the fluid overload in the lungs with the water pills. Uh, we're getting the blood clotting under control with anti-clotting medications. So you can use heparin or Lovenox or uh, Xeralto or Eliquis or Coumadin, Warfarin. All these things will work. And people are they're doing much better. They're not dying like they were. So we're getting our arms around this. And fortunately, we slowed it down enough to where the healthcare system was not overwhelmed. And that you and I are still safe because we still have our medical teams in place doing what they usually do, treating other things like regular old pneumonias and fixing ruptured bowels and, and taking out cancers and doing all the other things that we do as doctors. Uh, 
and Ken, working on the unit, I mean, I'm so thrilled that that the infectious disease doctor, Dr. Balcazar, and the intensivist and the other internist and on the floor that they're they're uh, you know that they're and the nurses are treating me like a member of the team because I'm going in going in and seeing consults and uh, seeing people who are having heart problems and uh, you know we gown up and we've got on our blue plastic gowns and we've got on our COVID uh, and 95 mask and we've got on face shields and gloves and and the nurses have on their space suits and uh, you know you feel like you're part of something special you know you're you're part of a unique team that's doing something that, that uh, has not been done before and uh, it's it's a good feeling and I think it gives the nurses some encouragement and shows moral support too to know that Dr. Bill is there with them and uh, we have fun and we joke and we laugh and we worry and we ask each other what we should do and we learn and and so it's good you know it's it's a good thing and I'm at 71 I'm thrilled that I can still be part of it it's just uh it's just a real a real gift to to be given so at any rate I think we're about at break time we are if you'd like to sure mm-hmm Let's take a break, and when I come back, I want to talk about the history of Memorial Day. I did not know about it. This is too cool the way this developed. I'll be right back. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's corruption trial is underway today. Netanyahu arrived at the courthouse wearing a blue surgical mask in line with public health restrictions due to the virus. He lashed out at the country's justice system, saying he is the victim of a conspiracy by police, prosecutors, and the media. North Korea's state media says leader Kim Jong-un has convened a key military meeting to discuss bolstering its nuclear arsenal and putting the country's strategic armed forces on high alert. It's his first public appearance in about three weeks. Hong Kong police have fired tear gas and water cannon today at protesters in a popular shopping district. Thousands are on the streets to march against China's proposed tough national security legislation up for the city pro-democracy supporters particularly upset. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727 727- 3846411 Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. Balance of nature's fruits and vegetables in a capsule. Changing the world one life at a time. 
I got uh, really good hopes for it. I try to eat healthy, but there's no way I can get the nutritional equivalent in my diet that I get from my balance of nature. What you eat today determines the kind of cells your body's going to make tomorrow. Instead of eating, you know, 15 pounds of vegetables, you can take this product. I think in the future, from taking balance of nature, my body's going to be making a lot better quality cells. I'm really excited about this product. You know, you're going to get enough to make a big difference. Don't wait to see what getting over 10 servings of whole fruits and vegetables every day can do for you. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off on any new preferred order. Start your journey to better health today by calling 1-800-2468-751 or by going to balanceofnature.com and make sure to receive this special radio offer by using discount code RESULTS. Take AM860 The Answer with you wherever you go with our mobile app, theanswertampa.com, Alexa, TuneIn, iHeart, and at radio.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. On the next Hugh Hewitt Show is my annual Semper Fi and America's Fun Show. Maybe the most inspiring day of the entire radio year. And we do it every Memorial Day, and you step up every Memorial Day in advance. Thank you. Do not miss Monday's Hugh Hewitt Show. Weekday mornings at 6 on AM 860. The answer. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. Mostly cloudy today with a thunderstorm in parts of the area for the afternoon. High 85. Remaining mostly cloudy through the night with a late night shower or thunderstorm around low 72. Tomorrow, watch for flooding on streets and poor drainage areas with thunderstorms heavy late in the day. Otherwise, mostly cloudy with a high for Memorial Day around 80. That's your AccuWeather with a forecast. I'm Kevin Snyder for AM860, The Answer. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, coming at you on AM860, The Answer, and all of our other stations that we're pumping out over, as well as social media, iHeart, and I don't know, probably hear me yelling down the street if you listen loud enough. So we're talking now about Memorial Day, and by the way, if I don't sound like my usual studio self, it's because I'm remote in Clearwater, Florida, as I was telling Ken earlier. Uh, the wife and the son and I, we pedaled 22 miles from Gulfport on our bicycles up here on the Pinellas Trail. And we spent the evening here in Clearwater Beach at the Hilton Hotel, went out and had dinner. And I sent the wife and the son out for breakfast because they just pester me to death in the hotel room where I'm doing the show. The show from, if I uh, allowed them to stay, they'd be making comments behind my back about the show, <laughs> telling me how to do it. They're very good at directing me. I, I, Ken, I know you don't have that problem with your family. No, never. Uh-uh. No. Never. No, that's that's only only me. I'm the only male on earth who has that. So at any rate, <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate, I made him go out for breakfast so I could do the show. But that's my my apology for you to you guys for not having the best audio this morning. But uh, you know, it's a holiday weekend, so give me a break. Come on. That's right. You rode your bike all the way to Clearwater. Come on. Yeah, I, you know, and we got to ride all the way back today. So, there you go. Uh, but, you know, I think if you're going from north to south, that's downhill. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 that, no, wrong. That doesn't work. So at any rate, the Memorial Day weekend actually did not become a federal holiday in the United States till the late 1960s and was signed into law in 1971, even though it had been celebrated 
since the late uh, 19th century and through the 20th century in most states. Uh, some of the southern states did not celebrate the uh, uh, federal, the Union Memorial Day because they thought it was disrespectful to the Confederate soldiers who had fallen and they had their own uh, their own days. Now, a lot of that's gone by the wayside with the civil rights movement and and, you know, especially with all the violence against black Americans, it, it's so unnecessary and stupid. And so, but they were celebrating in April. And the Southern women probably started the whole thing uh, because they started to honor their dead in the springtime, even during the Civil War. And the general who who uh, organized the first Union uh, Memorial Day actually learned this from the Southern women. Now, the the uh, the right goes back thousands of years, and it, it was celebrated. Uh, this holiday, in some form or another, was celebrated by the Greeks and the Romans, who were obviously uh, uh, fighting people. And Pericles gave a speech in 431 BC. He was a famous Athenian Greek general and statesman after the Peloponnesian War, and people have likened it to the tone of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. So uh, this goes way back. And in our country, one of the earliest commemorations was organized by recently freed slaves. So uh, thousands of Union soldiers had been held as prisoners of war in the South, as you know, and, and likewise, uh, Confederate soldiers were held in the Union. And Andersonville camp was the infamous camp in Georgia. And then there was also a camp for uh, Confederate prisoners up in Elmira, New York, which was the birthplace of the uh, abolitionist movement. That's where uh, Harriet Beecher and, and her, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe and her, her brother, uh, the Reverend Beecher, started a lot of that. And you remember she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, which brought the plight of Southern slaves to the nation's attention. So at any rate, there was a big camp up there. And I worked in the ER up in Elmira, and I was always a little bit nervous being a Southern boy. <laughs> they were going to stick me in the, in the Confederate camp, but they let me they let me be pretty much. So I got through there okay. So at any rate, there was in Charleston, South Carolina, there was a small camp, and 250 Union soldiers had perished from disease or exposure, and they were buried in a mass grave behind the, the track's grandstand. Uh, the racetrack in, in, in South Carolina there at Charleston. And so the freed black slaves, three weeks after the Confederate surrender, uh, they started a procession. Uh, and that was in May of 1865. And a thousand freed slaves, accompanied by regiments of the U.S. colored troops, including the Massachusetts 54th and a handful of white Charlestonians, gathered at the camp to consecrate a new proper burial site for the Union dead. So that was one of the earliest recorded, uh, the news press picked up on that, uh, celebrations by uh, anyone in the United States and organized by freed black slaves. So that's a fascinating uh, little story. Now, the guy who really got it going was in 1868 was General John Logan. He was a commander in chief of the Union Veterans Group known as the Grand Army of the Republic. And that's similar to our veterans uh, associations today, you know, VFW and all that, uh, veterans of foreign wars and uh, the various associations that have grown up to to honor veterans and to give them uh, a group to congregate with. And, you know, there's a lot of VFW posts around 
And that's still um, an important thing for a lot of people. So that's a good thing. So he started this and he called it Decoration Day. So initially, Memorial Day was known as Decoration Day. And he said that this is the day that Americans should lay flowers and decorations on the graves of the fallen dead, the war soldiers, the war dead, whose bodies now lie in almost every city and village and hamlet churchyard in the land. And so Logan chose May 30th because it was a rare day that didn't fall on the anniversary of a Civil War battle. And as you know, Ken, the Civil War ended in the spring of 1865, so it would coincide nicely with the end of the Civil War. Now, the, the celebration uh, gradually grew uh, throughout the towns and cities of the North and into some of the South, although a lot of the Southern states had their own uh, Memorial Day ceremonies and, and days that were specifically made as state holidays. But this continued to spread. And uh, by the 20th century, it was, although it was not an official national holiday, it was the unofficial beginning of summer and the unofficial day to recognize those who had fallen in battle for the country. And then along came the Spanish-American War and then World War One. And World War One brought a, a, a new uh, ritual along with it. There was uh, a Canadian soldier uh, who had written a poem called uh, Flanders Fields. You probably read this when you were a kid. And Flanders Fields was a graveyard in France near Ypres, I can't pronounce it, Y-P-R-E-S, where there was uh, a great battle. And uh, they had buried all of the uh, all of the allied troops there and they were nice neat rows with white crosses and in the springtime poppies started to grow up and you know poppies have those little red flowers you've probably seen those can I oh sure, sure absolutely that. yeah yeah and those so the poem starts off in Flanders fields where poppies grow among the crosses row on row and so this poem became very popular after World War one and we even had to read it as kids as part of our English lesson. And so the Canadians started wearing poppies on Remembrance Day, Memorial Day, whatever you want to call it. And so this has become a tradition uh, throughout the Western world. Uh, we don't do it that much in the United States, but you'll see some veterans doing it and selling or, or asking for a donation and giving a poppy away and you put it on your lapel and that's to show your respect. That's your way of, of laying a flower or a wreath on the grave of a soldier who's fallen in battle. And as you, as I've told you before, my uncle Jackie uh, died in World War II. He uh, was uh, kind of a hippie in the 19, early 1940s, uh, played the drums, was hanging out with musicians and smoking pot, and doing all the stupid things that I'm not going to tell you whether I did that or not, but uh, you can guess from what I've said over the years. But uh, when the war broke out in 1941, he turned 180 degrees, went and joined the Army Air Force, and he was a, a, a crew member on on a uh, B-17. I don't I don't remember if he was a gunner or if he was uh, you know a radio man or what, but he was on the B-17s. And the B-17s would fly out of England. They were the American bombers, the workhorses of the of the early part of the war, and they would go into Germany during the day and they would bomb plants and industrial areas and military sites and highways and various things like that. At night, the the uh, the British would 
fly in with their Lancasters and they'd carpet bomb cities and towns. They, they weren't real happy about having London bombs. So they, they took a, a, a personal uh, umbrage against the Germans and flattened every German city they could. So we flew during the day and we'd fly, fly in boxcars because that was the best way to protect all these bombers going over from the German fighters. And the German fighters would swarm on them when they would come over the coast and onto the continent of Europe, and also when they were going back out, so that the German fighters would get them before they got to their targets, and the German fighters could get back to their bases on the coast of the continent and in France and Germany, and refuel and go back up for a second sortie uh, when they were on their way back out, when the B-17 bombers were coming out. And uh, we didn't have long-range fighters then. We didn't have that till late in the war, until 1944, I think, is when the P-51 Mustang came out. And that actually had the ability and the power to carry enough fuel to get into Germany uh, with the bombers and then fly back out. So you would have fighters defending against the German fighters. Well, my uncle was on one of these B-17s, and they got shot down over the North Sea. And if you got shot down over the North Sea at that time, there was, you know, virtually no hope of being rescued and you'd freeze to death if you weren't already blown up in the explosion of the plane. So he lost his life and I still have his purple heart. And so he is someone who I remember and I will wear a poppy for today if I can find one. And so most families have given something to the cause over the years. And this has uh, given us this holiday, and it has grown over the, over the decades and over the centuries because we've had several wars. And the notion of Decoration Day was embraced, and 27 states officially held some kind of ceremony after the Civil War. But it was a long road from Decoration Day to an official Memorial Day, and it wasn't until 1968 that Congress took it up and decided to make it an official holiday. Why? So that it would be a three-day weekend for federal workers. So it'd be a little, a little, uh, little something for them, a little extra, so they'd have an extra long weekend. And of course, federal holidays apply to us all. So we all get a three-day weekend. Hooray! And you get a and great deal on a mattress too. I think right around that. You, you get a great deal on a mattress, and and you can get a car delivered to you touch-free along hey. with a pizza. <laughs> I think, wait, which one of them is touch-free? I think they're all touch-free now. I think so, and, yeah. and now the CDC is saying, oh, well, touch doesn't really have that much to do with the spread of the coronavirus, which Dr. Bill was saying, remember when uh, Pryor was on the show a couple of months ago? That's right. And he said, what's this hand-washing? I said, it's just something to keep you all busy. <laughs> <laughs> you probably don't remember that, but. All right. Very good. But I remember, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you do? You remember that? I do, oh. yeah. It was, it was a good line. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and so now we know that, as I've been saying all along, this is not a this is not a person contact contact virus. This is a respiratory virus. It's spread by people coughing and sneezing, and then someone else walking through that that spray, whether you can see it or not. But that's the way it goes. And now the CDC is saying. Oh, you know, touch isn't that important, and you don't have to wipe the surface of everything down every time, and, you know, blah, 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 but uh, whatever. Fauci wanted to save masks, and so he saved masks. I think that if that guy has a license in Georgia, Dr. Fauci, 
it should be pulled. He should be before the state board for the stupid things he did at the beginning of this outbreak and the dumb things he said. And I've been saying that all along, as you remember, get rid of Fauci. Looks like Trump's kind of gradually, you know, being very diplomatic and moving that gang back from the CDC because they really screwed this up. <clears throat> so at any rate, the uh, the holiday was signed into law officially uh, in 1971. That was probably by Nixon. You know, that guy, if he hadn't done all those stupid things, he'd, he'd be remembered as a great president. Oh, my, what an idiot. Oh, sure. So Open up China and all the things, he, he, all the nuclear oh, agreements with Russia and everything he did. Absolutely. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And you know what? Blue jeans, are they cost about the same price now as they did in 1980 because of Nixon. And you can say, well, we shouldn't have let all of our jobs go to China. And I agree with that. But come on. the If nothing else, the uh, competitive pressure uh, from Chinese laborers has pushed the cost of goods down worldwide. I don't care where they're made. And uh, you can say what you want about the Chinese communists, and I'll agree with you. But, you know, the average guy working and the average gal working over there, they're just people like you and me. They don't know what's going on. And uh, they're helping to keep the cost of goods down. And, you know, it's not my fault that New York taxed and waged itself out of the world market. I mean, if they want to have union and uh, run everything for them, uh, then go ahead. But it's going to push up the cost of your goods if you want to tax your population to death so that you can have uh, uh hand-holding sessions for your poor, then you just go ahead and do that. But now look at them. They're in deep doo-doo. New York City's almost broke or broke. They're running a deficit. The state's running a deficit. They want the federal government to bail them out. We ain't going to do it. That's not going to happen over our dead body. We are not bailing New York out. Hey, Jeff. And, you know, the cost goes way up when you get the unions involved. You know, Joe, our Joe that's, uh, that's our ramrod at the station, he uh, he was on a union job when he was up in Pennsylvania, and he said, Doc, it was supposed to be a three-month job, and it ended up taking two years because the union guys would come in, and we'd build something in the morning, and in the evening, they'd come in and tear it out. And he'd ask them, why are you doing that? And so you're going too fast. We don't want this job to be done that fast. <laughs> Can you believe that? That's just ridiculous. And then he came down here to the sunny south, and uh, they were putting up a Sonic or a, you know a, a McDonald's or something. He said, "I couldn't believe it. You know, there was a, a, a concrete slab poured one day, and a week later there was a restaurant open." And he just couldn't believe that it was being done that fast. He had never seen anything move like that because because the Northeast is so bogged down by unions, and you can. You know, with the mafia, at least in days gone by, you could add another four or five percent to the cost of the project. And I mean, come on, it, it, this is ridiculous. We don't need these unions. The federal government's taking care of most of the complaints and problems that workers had uh, that the unions were initially formed for, like OSHA and health safety. And uh, you, you can go to bargaining tables with the federal government. They, the Department of Labor, they have bargaining people. You mean you can do all kinds of things. It's, just ridiculous. At any rate, this is supposed to be a solemn weekend, uh, but sure looks like people are out having fun to me. I guess there's a lot of pent up uh, uh, angst over all of this and a lot of cabin fever. So the beaches I'm looking out at it now, they are already packed and it's what, 10 in the morning. 
So, so much for social distancing. People think it's over. We'll see a surge. We'll see a surge. Hey, listen, Ken, I want you to have a great rest of the weekend. I hope you're off tomorrow uh, and uh, get some rest. Okay, bud. And I wish the best to everybody out there. I am Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Ken, play some music. I'm out of here. <laughs>